This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. We're fortunate today to have good friend Chris Rowe, a wildlife biologist from Rowe Hunting Resources. Chris, how are you? Doing well. How are you, my friend? Oh, doing pretty good. Uh, tell me about what you've got going on at Rowe Hunting Resources, Chris. Well, like you said, I started my career out as a wildlife biologist uh, and behavioral ecologist. I've always been fascinated by animal behavior, vocalizations, communication, and, and that type of stuff. And so, and I've always been an avid hunter. So when I started doing seminars for different folks, I was a pro staffer for Primos for a number of years. When I did seminars, I'd always incorporate some of that biological and behavioral information in those seminars, and people loved it. So what I eventually did is just took a lot of that and put it online. Uh, Row Hunting Resources is a, an advanced online educational resource that's mostly video-based. So it's basically an online video library. Uh, we've got turkeys. We got we cover topics like turkey, elk, and deer are the ones. Well, whitetails are the ones that we uh, focus on mostly there. But it's a subscription base, so people can come in and and get a subscription, whether it's a you know three months or a year long, and then you have unlimited access to all those videos. Uh, for the turkey videos, I think, I don't know how many hours of video we've got there. with it. oh. it's, it, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, I've been a subscriber yeah. for years, and, you know, the the resource that you have there is incredible between the elk and the deer and the turkey stuff. I mean, uh, you, you have every type of bugle, every type of cow call. You have every type of hen noise, you know, eh, you have hunts on there. Um I mean, the turkey stuff is phenomenal. The elk stuff, it's all just great stuff. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast is uh, how detailed you are, how thorough you are. Um, so I didn't mean to interrupt, but just fantastic stuff there. No, I, I, hey, I, I appreciate the kind words and yeah, no worries because uh, the one thing I was just going to say and, and end with that is because it's an online library, we're constantly adding stuff and, and that just gets added to it. So whatever we add, it's just like, it, it is just like your library. It doesn't matter if the library has a thousand books or 10,000 books, you get your library card and it's all there for you. So that's how we've set it up. And, and, you know, you've been around this industry long enough to know that, I mean, there's a lot of information out there and it's really hard to sift through what's good, what's bad. That's why I do everything the the way we do it, I, I want to have everything as, as video-based as possible. So that way, you know, I can flap my gums and tell you, you know, a, a certain principle or a certain vocalization or whatever. But you don't know if I'm telling you the truth or not. Well, by doing what we do, we show you the animal doing it. So that way you can say, oh, I heard Chris say this. Ah, there's the critter doing it. And then I can see how that inner, you know, how that all played out, whether we're talking turkey vocalizations and watching a gobbler respond to it, or whether we're talking, you know, bull vocalizations, cow elk vocalizations or whatever. By having the video there, it just helps solidify the learning process, but also kind of provides a little, 
I don't know. I, I think it's a better quality uh, resource than, than what you can find anywhere else. Well, yeah. I mean, anytime you get to see the actual animal that you're talking about, making the sound, watching their jaw move, watching their body language, you know, it just gives you a real clear picture of what you're trying to describe as, as you know, the author. But when you can actually show it, people can hear it, they can see it. I mean, that, that seals the deal. Um, Chris, why don't you tell me a little bit how row hunting resources started and um, uh, how long it's been going and, and maybe some of the details. Yeah, you bet. Well, I started out doing my seminars and stuff in, in 1999. And for years, I would talk about this stuff. And, and, you know, again, I would, you know, you'd go to an elk seminar and someone tells you how to blow on a mouth call. Well, you can only go to so many of those seminars before you're like, all right, yeah, I heard that. Well, I, again, I would add in my behavior and vocalization stuff and some of the research stuff that we did, I would do. People loved it and, and wanted more of it. And so I started doing seminars literally every Saturday, you know, Thursday nights, Saturdays, and even some Sundays all the way through summer into, you know, spring before turkey season, summer before uh, elk season. And it just got crazy. And so people kept wanting more. I tried playing around with doing some DVDs, but I was never uh, satisfied with the quality that I could do myself. And I just didn't have the money to, to go mass product, produce some of the stuff. So I kind of really sat back and I, I really didn't do anything for years. And, and people just kept clamoring for it. Well, finally, you know, about 2010, well, 2009, I think, is when we started getting serious about maybe we can do something online. That's when online streaming really started to, to pick up and, and start taking off. We realized that, you know, we can do some of these videos ourselves. We picked up the editing software. We picked up the cameras. And we started dabbling in it. So in 2010, we kicked off Row Hunting Resources and... I actually, we, we actually hired a, uh, or rented out a studio and, and worked with an editing company and, and went to the studio and had them professionally do it. And, and it worked great. But when we looked at it, we were like, my gosh, we can do this. And so yeah. we, we ended up putting a studio, I've got a studio uh, at the house here that we use. Uh, I, I've got the editing software. And once I learned how to do that, I said, you know what, there is, there's no limit the only limitation on what I can bring folks now is just the limitation of my time. We do have a, you know, I do have a quote unquote real job. Uh, we do have our own wildlife consulting company, Row Ecological Services. We do a bunch of stuff with, and then we dabble in a, in a variety of other things. So row hunting resources now, that's what I've kind of segued into and is more of my full time activity. And so, I mean, especially 20 or 2015, we actually, are ramping up now to just go all in on our stuff from gear reviews and equipment to more of the behavioral stuff to you know field tactics just just people have, have loved it they've responded well to it and so if if folks want it we'll keep going but we've been going since 2010 and it's really picked up these past i'd say well probably two years if not three years that's fantastic, and that's they can my listeners can find you at rowhuntingresources.com, correct? That's R O E, rowhuntingresources.com. That's correct. Yep, you nailed it. And like I said, uh, and I don't know if you were going to say this earlier. You know, you and I talked previous about this. It, 
we do have for turkey stuff i do have some free stuff we have our youtube channel as well uh that obviously all that stuff is free but if folks want to subscribe to the educational modules we've got an elk module turkey module deer module and then we have an annual all you know a complete comprehensive pass if if folks want to sign up for that, if they just type in uh, JSO podcast for J Scott Outdoors podcast, JSO podcast, we'll knock twenty percent off of the subscription. So for like the turkey module, it'd be twelve bucks. So, wow for the, for the whole year they could get the subscription for twelve bucks. That that would be the three month module if they want yeah. if they want to do the whole year the annual one. Now the annual one includes the all of it, everything, turkey, yeah. elk, yeah. and deer. That would end up being forty bucks for the year. Oh man, what, you know how could you spend? You couldn't spend money any better. Uh, your elk and turkey stuff uh, is out of this world, and and um, you know I'm not much of a uh, midwestern or you know eastern whitetail hunter, but. Um, you know, that stuff's phenomenal too, but just on the turkey and elk alone, uh, fantastic resource. Um, literally every sound an animal, an elk or a turkey makes you have. And, um, Chris, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now as far as, uh, your headquarters and, um, uh, what you've got in front of you here, turkey season coming up. Yeah, no, yeah, we've, uh, for us, well, I guess let me take a real quick step back. I have been, I've lived in Colorado since mid-90s, and I've done stuff from Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and then Kansas and Nebraska for turkeys and, and whitetails. Well, like I said, we, we do other wildlife work with our consulting companies, and, and one of the things that we do is comprehensive uh, wildlife management for private property owners. Well, long story short, over the past couple of years, we got hooked up with some folks here in Kansas and are helping them manage their property. One thing, one thing led to another. And so now I'm actually living in Kansas and not only helping them manage their property and, and kind of manage the hunting resources or hunting programs on that property. What it actually has also allowed us to do is extend our educational resources to those folks that want to come out and actually learn how to hunt and actually go on a hunt in order to do so. And so I'm getting ready right now in Kansas here. Our season starts April 1st and then it runs through May 31st. So I'm getting ready. We've got a bunch of guys. Uh, we've got some uh, young kids. They're, you know, Parents are bringing their kids out. We have some uh, new turkey hunters coming out to, to learn just the, the raw basics. And then we've got some... Uh, seasoned turkey hunters that just want to kind of learn a little bit more about the Rio Grands out here and actually how they can perform a little bit better in the field. So we've got our April pretty much locked in uh, the entire month. So I'm getting ready now, figuring out where the birds are going to be, uh, getting a handle on how many birds we have in, in the areas. And then I'm also talking with some other landowners just to see if we can't secure some additional areas because you know, if, if anybody's here in the Midwest or if you've been paying attention to the news or the weather reports, I, we are brutally, brutally dry this season. So it's going to be an interesting spring to see how the crops respond 
and how spring green up happens if we don't get any moisture. So that's really what I'm, you know, my March, end of February, beginning of March is always, you know, getting geared up for April. So that's what I'm doing right now, hitting the fields, just trying to figure out where we're going to be and, and how much, how many birds we've got to work with. And speaking about how many birds you have to work with and their movements, Chris, what are you seeing? What do you know will draw those birds to your property? If you have it or don't have it, what is the key to, to having birds in the Midwest there, in the Kansas area? What is the key thing? What's the key ingredient? Uh, I, food, food, food. Um, and that sounds pretty generic, but... The interesting thing to keep in mind with now we where I'm at I'm in kind of the northwest part of Kansas we have Rio Grande turkeys here but our habitats are long linear river bottoms and so we've got a lot of agriculture it's either winter wheat corn soybean maybe some Milo maybe a little or, or Milo is pretty big but you might have some uh, alfalfa. Maybe they'll grow some cane for the cattle or whatever, but it's it's very agricultural uh, oriented crop, grain based crops dominate everything, and so you'll have these long linear cottonwood corridors with these various crops scattered around. The number one field or crop that I'm looking for right now is winter wheat. Winter wheat is the first thing to green up in the spring. And I can tell you right now, if we got any moisture between now and uh, the end of March, our winter wheat fields are going to pop. They're going to green up, and that's where all of the birds head. They head straight to the winter wheat. So even though they might be on corn now, they might be grouped up on uh, Milo stubble or whatever, I, I really don't care about that because where they are now is almost surely not where they're going to be in a month from now and where they're going to be a month from now is on winter wheat. And Chris, how far do you see these birds moving? I mean, how far realistically, how far do you think birds will move uh, to from now till April 1st? Without exaggeration, easily five to 10 miles. Wow. Our, our Rio Grands are, notorious for not only the size of their winter flocks that they can that they they will achieve just literally in hundreds of birds you, there are some places around here where we'll have the hens and poults grouped up to where you'll have 300 400 birds all in one big flock and then wow. your mature gobblers will be off in another flock on our property last year we had some good crops I videoed a bachelor group of 35 toms. Every one of those toms had a, a nine and a half to 10 inch beard or better. So they get in the wintertime, they have these huge flocks, but because of the way the habitat is situated and the way the food is, they will move up and down those river bottom corridors till they find the food and they do not bat an eye at moving Five, six, seven, ten miles, not a problem. Wow, that's incredible. So so as a landowner, you're gonna be saying you gotta have winter wheat. I mean oh if you if yeah. if turkeys are important to you, you've got to have winter wheat. It, yes, in in my yeah, absolutely. And quite honestly, if we had, had um, better moisture, we were actually going to plant some winter wheat 
strictly for the deer and turkeys because it's kind of funny. Whitetails in the fall they will hit winter wheat big time as well because again it's 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 the early winter wheat for those that don't know. The reason why it's called winter wheat is because it lies dormant over the winter. You actually plant it in September to the beginning of October. It actually grows. It pops up, comes out of the ground, grows about three to four inches. Beautiful green, good protein, very palatable, very tasty. So all the animals love it. But then by the time winter sets in, it just goes dormant. It just stays there, you know, above the ground. And then come springtime, when the soil moisture or the soil temperature warms back up and it's got some moisture, it starts to grow again. So winter wheat is important in the fall because of the forage that it provides. And then it's also important in the early spring. And so we have a crop rotation. Most of the landowners out here, because it's dry, we don't have it in my, for my ground that we deal with. It's all dry land. We don't have center pivot irrigation for the most part. And so the farmers have to deal with the moisture that they have. And so they rotate their crops based on a nutrient uh, reasoning, herbicide reasoning, moisture, the whole nine yards. But our rotation, the landowner will plant winter wheat for two years. He'll follow with corn, and then he'll go to soybean, and then he rotates around. Well, on that fourth or fifth year, we have a lot of stubble that's just bare dirt, dead stubble and there's really no food well if we had had moisture this year we were going to go and plant winter wheat on that bare ground just because we wanted it for the deer and the turkeys we just didn't have the moisture this year but i'm jay i'm dead serious i don't care if i have a milo field i don't care if i have a corn field i don't care what fields i have i am going down the road now driving around and finding winter wheat. I don't care if the birds are there now or not. I don't care if I lay eyeball on a turkey. If there's winter wheat, there will be a turkey. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and Chris, with the timing of your birds uh, being a dry year, uh, will that affect when the breeding season actually really gets cranking? Do you think it'll be earlier or late? And in this year coming up, what is your uh, estimation on when the prime gobbling season will be with the conditions that we're seeing? Well, that is a good question because I'm, I'm one of those people that, you know, as a, as a biologist, I can tell you that, you know, photo period drives the hormone cycling and that's going to drive the bulk of the, whether they breed, you know, when, when the, when the hens start to cycle in and when they become receptive and et cetera, et cetera. The, that stays relatively the same. I, my opinion and what I've seen is that the weather can affect how intense we see the activity surrounding that, number one. And number two, and more importantly, how those birds interact with their habitat. So, for instance, say we had a wet year and we had a quote-unquote early spring. Yes, the body condition or the, the percent body fat that those hens will have is going to be high and means that they can cycle in and become receptive as soon as, I mean, as soon as they're physiologically ready, their bodies are ready. But if we have a lot of spring green up early and we have a lot of food scattered across the landscape as in new, you know, weeds and, and flowers and all sorts, you know, dandelions and that type of stuff springing up early then the birds will scatter early 
and they will be spread across the landscape more a little bit earlier, meaning you're going to sometimes what I end up seeing is we'll have groups of hens and those gobblers and those gobblers are already locked down with the hens earlier than normal, which means we're going to see a little bit change in, in the behavior and the gobbling activity and whatnot. Well, for this year, with it being so dry, my suspicion is that we're going to have those winter flocks. The birds can only scatter as long as there's food there to sustain them. And if we, right. don't, if we don't have a good spring green up, then the turkeys are going to stay on their winter feed longer, which means they're going to stay grouped up longer which means we could start seeing a heck of a lot of just absolutely epic gobbling and, and calling activity and just, just general behavior where birds are attacking decoys and they're fighting with one another and gobbling their heads off, just going crazy. I think we can see that this year actually pushed even a little bit later into the season than maybe what we normally do. Now, with that being said, I mean, we get one rainstorm, you know, or one or two rainstorms between now and April 1st. I mean, things can green up that fast. And I mean, literally within a matter of two to three, four days, you can have, you know, a big giant flock. And then four days later, they're scattered and busted up and, and gone. I, I, I think, I hope I'm wrong. I really want the moisture. But if we don't change this pattern, I think we're going to see things as far as a behavioral cycle and as far as the, the activity that we see, gobbling, chasing, you know, that type of stuff, it actually may be pushed out a little bit later than, than what we normally see each year. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and in, in your module, uh, going back to the row hunting resources module, I mean, I know you focus on what you call river bottom rios. Yeah. Um, tell me about, river bottom rios and that that seems like those two go hand in hand but is that always the case Mike is my question well no and I, the reason why and the reason why on the module I specifically titled it river bottom rios is because if we look across the United States Rio Grande turkeys can be found everywhere from uh, well, the, I mean, the, the most popular area that people talk about with Rio is, is down in Texas. But we'll have Rio Grande turkeys throughout, you know, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. But with the Wild Turkey Federation and state game uh, agencies, they have relocated or translocated or transplanted turkeys all over the United States. And so I know... There's Rio Grande turkeys in Utah and Washington State and Oregon. And, and you, I think, from talking with you in the past, you hunt Rio Grandes in California, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've taken my nephews now, oh, it's probably been seven, eight years um, over in central California. And uh, California, I believe, has Merriam's, Rios, and maybe some Easterns up in the top end, but I'm not sure. Um, but you know, Cal California is primarily made up of Rios yeah. and ironically where we hunt is kind of, you know, uh, hilly mountainous, uh, kind of terrain and, um, you know, definitely not flat, definitely not agriculture, definitely not, you know, river bottoms, so to speak. Although there are, you know, drainages and Creek bottoms, uh, the, 
interesting thing that I see that the correlation between river bottom rios and what I see over there is if you have any type of moving water, um, just a trickle of a stream or, or any type of water, uh, it, it almost seems that those rios will always be roosted over moving water if possible. I don't know exactly what the draw is. If it's a, if it's a safety issue, get out over that water or if they just feel content, or if it's just the fact that that's where the, you know, the trees are, um, you know, the, the bigger trees. I, I haven't quite put a finger on that, but yeah, it is interesting to see the different terrain. I've hunted rios in Texas, uh, around the Canadian Texas, around the Canadian River, and, you know, there you've got big sagebrush, open, you know, big, big country, open, open country, to ag fields and then the Canadian River and you know there were birds all up and down that Canadian River um, e even on properties that we couldn't hunt you know you could just drive down the main road shocking birds and it was amazing how many birds are roosted along that Canadian River in Texas. Well yeah and the great part about that is the birds are the same a Rio Grande turkey is a Rio Grande turkey the only big difference is how they interact with their habitat. And so that's why on our module, I specifically called out the river bottom portion because there are different, like what you just nailed it. I mean, what you see in California and Texas, I can almost guarantee you is going to be different than what you're going to see in Kansas and Nebraska, only because how the food is scattered, how seasonal that food is, and where the available roost sites and nesting areas are. And so in the in my in the turkey module under that video series, I split out three different main topics. I talk about the habitat, then I talk about the seasonal movements, and then I just kind of talk about sign and everybody talks about turkey sign, but I I go into turkey sign and and then also how you can interpret that turkey sign so that way you can figure out what's actually going on in your area maybe a little bit better. With the habitat, the thing that's interesting about habitats on river bottom rios is it is it is it's extremely variable. There are some areas in say here in Kansas and Nebraska where you have maybe a cattle feedlot and the and the farmer is feeding corn to his cows. Well, corn does not digest very well, and so you'll have huge flocks of three four hundred birds will pile in along these river bottoms where you have these feedlots where they might be growing corn in center pivot irrigation areas. They've got alfalfa and then they've got this feedlot and there's so much food that just hundreds of birds pile into it. Whereas the flip side of that, the, the whole uh, opposite end of the spectrum, you know, like you have in Colorado, maybe around Lyman, Colorado on the, the big sandy uh, river bottom, it's a cottonwood corridor and there are turkeys there, but it is all native short grass prairie. And so the food is extremely limited. The water is extremely limited. And so the number of birds is much more limited and how they, how they interact with that habitat and how they move is much more limited or much different than what we see in some of the areas in Kansas. So that series goes through those different scenarios and helps those people that say, I want to hunt Colorado, 
I want to hunt. Oklahoma, maybe I want to hunt. In Oklahoma, to a certain extent, I mean, you kind of Oklahoma, you start getting the Texas scenario, but definitely the folks that want to hunt Kansas, western Kansas, the folks that want to hunt Nebraska, that is what this series is tailored to, to help them understand the habitats and movements. However, once we get beyond that, then you know, the, the seasonal movements and the behavioral cycles, it's all the same. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about California Rios or I'm talking about Kansas Rios. They're going to follow the green up. They're going to stay where the best food is. They're going to scatter across the landscape to find the hens are to get closer to where they want to nest. The gobblers are going to follow them. And depending on whether we're talking early season and they're still grouped up and still splitting up or whether we're talking late season and we've got hens on the nest and gobblers off by themselves, all those type of things are very similar from, from region to region. The big issue with river bottom rios is just how they interact with that habitat and how that dictates where you are going to likely find them and then how you need to deal with them when you get there. That's awesome. You know, uh, one of the things that I've noticed from a behavioral uh, standpoint is you know, not having hunted Eastern or Osceola, I've basically hunt uh, Merriam's, Goulds, and Rios. Uh, the Rios, to me, seem mean. I mean, they'll flat, the gobblers are flat. They, they, they can be vicious at times. I was curious to get your take compared to the Merriam's. Uh, if you've noticed that the Rios can, I mean, they'll come and flat just, just get after a, a turkey decoy and you know, spurring and all sorts of stuff. What have you noticed? Well, I will tend to agree with that. However, and, and, and quite honestly, this is the first time I've actually thought about that. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an intriguing question to me. I would tend to agree with it. But, however, I'm thinking back on some of my Merriam's hunts and some of my – I've hunted Rio's, Merriam's, and Eastern's. I've never hunted Osceola, and I've not been a, had a chance to hunt Goulds yet. But – Yes, while I will say that I've seen Rios much more aggressive with each other and much more aggressive with decoys, I will say that I have actually seen similar behavior with Merriams and similar behavior with, with Easterns, but I think it is much I think it has more to do with the groups that they are in rather than the birds themselves. And the reason why I say that, I have hunted in places where for, for Merriam's in the mountains, in Colorado and New Mexico specifically. I've been in places where the Merriam's in Colorado, I mean, they don't want to mess with the decoy hardly at all, especially a strutter. They just don't, they just kind of stay back, but they, they will come to a call, they'll come investigate, and you can bust the heck out of them all day long, but they just don't seem to interact with the decoys like what we've seen with Rio's. However, when I had my New Mexico uh, the last time I was in New Mexico, I was in a situation where we were in a canyon where there were just piles of birds. I mean, just the number of gobblers was just absolutely incredible. Well, in that case, those gobblers did, in fact, want to whoop up on the strutter decoy and the Jake decoy. And I had my sets setups, my decoy setups, just like I would have uh, here in Kansas. And they just absolutely just whooped up on them. And the same thing goes for New York. I actually grew up in the dairy country of upstate New York, up in Skinny Atlas, around the Syracuse area. And so I grew up that, I mean, turkey hunting is what I cut my teeth on. And that's what got me hooked on wildlife. 
And so I've hunted in some places in New York where it's the same thing, where they're, they're individual birds or they're scattered birds where they'll come and they'll investigate, but they're not very aggressive. However, we have some farms that are managed now up there, or I, I should say the habitat is, is such to where we have a pile of birds in there now, and I see some of the same behavior. And so I'm wondering if what we see with Rio's is more of a of a um, result of the fact that they generally are in bigger flocks. They generally are grouped up a little bit more. And so they have to have a little bit more behavioral engagement with one another than maybe what we see in some habitats with Merriam's and, and Easterns. They're, they're not as numerous. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the, the, and I think the same is true with elk. You know, you clump a bunch of elk up and they're going to fight and they're going to bugle at each other and they're going to be used to just getting after it. Whereas you've got pockets of isolated elk where, you know, they're spread out and they're, you know, they're not really there. I think animals in general are lovers over fighters, but I think you throw them, clump them all together and they they have to fight to survive. You know, there's a pecking order, and I think that the more you clump them up, the more that they're liable to, um, you know, want to interact and, and have to interact with each other. And um, it's just interesting to see, you know, I can remember going with friends to that Canadian Texas and first time hunting, you know, Rio's outside of California. And, I mean, the the uh, rancher that we went to, he's like, now, this is late in the season, guys. The birds are going to be call shy. Don't call to these birds. You know, try and get in front of them and figure them out. Well, you know, I looked at my buddy Daniel, and I'm like, we came all this way. I'm not, you know, we're we're turned loose on this property. I'm going to call the heck out of them, and it'll either work or it won't. And, I mean, we had birds that were very uh, responsive and, you know, attacked our decoys and, um you know, so I, I I think it's circumstantial, but I think certainly when you clump any animal up, a lot of times it's going to bring the fighters out in a lot of them and, and bring some aggressiveness out because in order to survive, <coughs> excuse me, they've, they've got to be aggressive. Um, do you, I know you're big into using decoys and specifically, you know, using certain decoys and certain setups. Do you mind... Uh, maybe going into a little bit of the decoys that you use, uh, you know, maybe for Rio's, Eastern's, Merriam's, or what have you, or or maybe some of your setup types that you like. Yeah, you bet. Um, I I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I guess there's two thoughts instantly running through my mind: is decoys and the type of the, the quality, and then how we set them up. You know. I, and probably like you, Jay, I mean, I've been turkey hunting since I was, you know, I don't know, 14 years old or whatever it was. I mean, that's one of the first things I ever hunted. And so you look at what decoys were in, in the eighties versus what the decoys look like now there, there's a world of difference. And so I always get the question of, you know, are these high-end decoys, are they worth it? I mean, obviously, you're going to spend some money, whether you're talking Dave Smith decoys, you're talking Avian X decoys, or any, any number of them now, they're getting better. Even even some of the Primos and HS Strut and those guys are, are doing better with their decoys. But really, when it comes down to the, the two, what I consider the high-end decoys, Dave Smith decoys and, and Avian X, are they worth it? Well, I've run 
all the type of decoys that I can. And I will honestly say to you, if you are serious about being successful, and more importantly, whether you're dealing with kids, whether you're doing dealing with new hunters, or you're dealing if you just want to video birds, absolutely the high definition that the ultra realistic decoys absolutely perform better than your cheaper decoys and they perform better not only in getting the birds to, to finish and come all the way in but for me you know recording behavior and recording vocalizations and working with new hunters and 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 you know especially kids i want those birds in front of me for as long as they want to stay there and as long as I can. And the ultra realistic decoys will keep turkeys in your decoy spread and literally 10 yards in front of your blind. I've had them. Well, I've got one video um, on our YouTube channel and, and on our module that literally we had Jake's stay all day, eight hours, just laid in the decoys, laid under the decoys and fell asleep in the decoys because they're that realistic. So yeah. if that's what you want, then yes, it's definitely worth the money to spend, or it's definitely worth spending the money on the on the good decoys. Now, I think you run the Dave Smith, right? I do. I I run the Dave Smith. Um, you know, ever since I've been using the Dave Smith decoys, um, I got to be honest, my success with decoying turkeys has gone way up. Yeah. Uh, I I use the Dave Smith strutter when I'm hunting on private ground. I put the real tail fan in, the real tail feathers. I even have rigged it up at times uh, on on a string, so that um, if 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 it's out in the field, um, out in an open, we don't hunt you know agriculture much around this this part. But you know if it's out in an open area and a bird comes out at you know 200 yards across and can see it, and if I wiggle that and it pivots with the real tail fan and the wings, I mean. It's on. Yeah. I my my general consensus is real real tail feathers and real wings on the Dave Smith strutter. It is on now. Um, another decoy that I really like is the Dave Smith Jake. Um, I I use the Jake and hens a lot. Where I'll just uh, you know sometimes in the mountains when I'm running and gunning I'm not going to maybe carry the strutter as much. And I found that carrying a couple of uh, feeding hens. And a Jake um, works really, really well. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm partial to Dave Smith. And all of my decoys now, my whole spread is all Dave Smith decoys. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a firm believer the more realistic looking it is, the, the, the better success you're going to have. Um, I'm curious to ask you, have you ever had a blind when you're setting up your decoys do you find that the birds focus on the decoys and never even pay attention to the blind? And in your normal spread, will you face the decoys at your blind or your, your calling position, or will you face them away? What is, how do you set them up? <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of good information in there. Um, first of all, the, your first question there, as far as is, do they focus on the blind or do they focus on the decoys? I will honestly say the higher the quality of decoy that you have, the less likely they're, they're going to focus on the blind. Now, most of the time, if you have a high-quality blind, I run uh, the, the Primo's Double Bull blinds. I think they're 
the best, if not one of the best. But if you have a high-quality blind, most of the time, turkeys are not going to pay much attention to the blind. I mean, literally, you can walk out in the middle of an alfalfa field or a winter wheat field, plop the thing down, put decoys out in front of it, and you have a high percentage probability of, of having birds just come in and, and work that setup. Again, if you have the high-quality decoys, the better off you are. I run the Avian X decoys only because I, I just – Avian X allows me to, to collapse them, and I can, I can flatten them down. Um, but Avian X decoys are – I mean, they're, they're second only to the, the Dave Smith ones. And I will agree with you as far as, you know, what birds I have. I, the only thing I will say is I like having the Primos Killer Bee strutter decoy. And I talk about this in, our, in the decoy videos I've got on the module. I, the reason why I like the, the, the Primo's Killer Bee is because of the ability for me to manipulate that tail. I can make the tail go up and down. I can, I can move that bird in a variety, that decoy in a variety of ways that absolutely just seals the deal. However, I, like you, have, I've got the Avian X upright hen, feeding hen, etc. But I've got their, what they have is a quarter strut, Jake. And to your first question, uh, to, to kind of go back to the previous question of, of how I set my decoys up, you know, it will change throughout this, the, you know, as early season, I'm going to have more decoys than later season. Late, you start getting a really, really late season. Sometimes all I will have is a single upright hen because that's what the gobblers are looking for. But for the bulk of what I do anymore, I'm dead serious. I will run... I will. I call it the whipping boy setup, <laughs> and I I put a D, I put the strutter out there, I put the Jake out there, and I put the hens out there, and depending on if I know if I know where the 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 direction from which the birds are likely to come, I can set it up to where I always want my strutter and my Jake decoy where I can take the shot and I will put them for our, for our hunters and for the students. I'll put the, you know, I'll put the strutter at say 10 yards and I'll put the Jake decoy at 15 yards or whatever, but I'll spread the decoy spread out a little bit. I will have the Jake decoy typically behind the strutter. And when you say behind, you mean away from the blind uh, towards the bird where they're coming from? It, either that or just farther away. So, for instance, one thing that I – and I'll give you a little – we're, we're getting into nitpicky. This, these, I, I, I'm telling you, I just – I could talk about this for hours because I love it. This is where you use their behavior against them, and it's just absolutely deadly. I – you know, there's, there's schools of thought on how to position a strutter, and, and we could spend a pile of time talking about that. But just to cut to the chase, I find – if I take that tail fan and I, or, or that strutter and I point that bird away, the decoy away from where the birds are likely to come in from. So if he's coming in, if the real birds are to my left and I put my strutter out, I will put my strutter facing to the right or I will have it quartering towards me but facing to the right. So that means when the birds come in, they see the back of that tail fan, and they have the ability to immediately position the decoy tail fan between them 
and the decoy's eyes. And if you do that, I can almost guarantee you 99% of the time, those birds are going to come smoking right up in from behind the decoy. Now, yes, we can argue, you know, there's some people who say, well, face the decoy at him. We can have that discussion. But what I do, and it just works almost every single time, to, it's so deadly, it's not even fair. Put the, put the tail fan so the back of the tail faces where those birds are. And then I will put the Jake decoy behind that so just further away and what i usually end up seeing is the real gobblers will come in if you have a just a super aggressive tom that is the dominant tom they'll just smoke right on past the jake decoy and they will absolutely trounce on the strutter they'll just bowl him over spur smack him with his wing they'll just go ballistic on that strutter however if you have a bird, especially two-and-a-half-year-old birds, if you have a bird that is interested in coming in, he's interested in showing off, he wants those hens, but he's a little bit leery of another strutting gobbler, almost every time they will go and just whoop up on the Jake decoy. That's why I call him Whipping Boy. I purposely put him out there to catch the brunt of all the frustration that the <laughs> bird has. And so if I put my strutter at say 10 yards right where I have a good shooting lane or in front of the blind and then I put that Jake decoy at say 15 yards right where I can shoot him that Tom is going one of those two places and even if you have the most like you said some animals are lovers and some are fighters if you, right. if you have a gobbler that is absolutely at the bottom of the pecking order and he does not want to physically engage anybody he still can come in and he can work. And whip up on the Jake. He can either whip up on the Jake or he can come in and just strut between the Jake and the Gobbler, still giving you a shot. Okay, and I just want to be clear. So you're facing out of the blind. The birds are to the left. Your, your strutter is facing with the fan at the birds, the direction they're coming from, and the, the strutter would be to the right. And you put the Jake between the strutter and the where the birds are coming from either either between the strutter and the birds or i position him if i draw a straight line from the blind to the strutter to the jake but i will put i will put the jake off to the side a little bit so for me from a, from a uh, when when i'm dealing with with students or new hunters or whatever and i want to video them at the same time because i'm greedy i will I will put that I will put the from where the person who is shooting if if you are the shooter yeah. in the blind you're going to look out and you're going to whether it's a bow or gun you're going to be sighting in and you're going to be able to put your bead or your pins right on that strutter's head at 10 yards and then right over his back and just to the left or to the right is going to be the Jake decoy so literally you have to move your bead um, just a, a tiny, you know, an inch or two left or right, and you can either be on the Jake decoy or you can be on the strutter. So they're all in line. But I put the Jake decoy beyond the strutter, so that way the, the those gobblers, if they don't want to get too close to the strutter, they can go a little further away. They can beat up on the Jake, and they can engage him from there. Okay, and so the the theory of the whipping boy is similar to. Two high school kids are squaring off down at the uh, 
you know, local burger joint or whatever, and they're kind of jawboning back and forth. And one of, uh, they've got a little buddy with them, and he's kind of a little scrawny dude. And one of them walks up, instead of uh, uh, engaging in a fight with the actual person, he goes over and just starts beating up on the, on the little smaller, smaller guy just to show how tough he is. Yep. Instead of going over and fighting, you know, the real kid, he's going to go fight, fight on the little guy and uh, show, show his strength. Yep, you, you, you nailed it. And the funny thing is, and this is why I love behavior and behavioral ecology, it doesn't matter if we're talking humans, whether we're turkeys, elk, horses, dogs, it doesn't matter. When you are in that dynamic, Every, it's, called, it's, it's a behavioral principle called displacement behavior. Have you ever, in, in, for anybody who's listening that has kids, have you ever, and you have multiple kids, of di- obviously of different ages, have you ever disciplined one and then watched that child go and then pick on their brother and sister? Absolutely. It's the exact same thing. That's displacement behavior. I am. I, I have a, a, a certain level of angst with me, I, whether I got disciplined, I got in trouble, or someone picked on me, or I want to pick on someone. However, I'm going to pick on the weaker of the two, or the weaker of the ones that I perceive. And so, you, like I said, I've got hor- or I've got horses, and like I said, you can see this with horses all the time, where someone will get, you know, one horse will go after another one, and the loser of that interaction goes over and picks on someone else just because they have to, they have to take out their anger. If you put it, this is again, this is my opinion. And especially if we're talking earlier in the season, when there's still, uh, there's still some of that interspecific competition that, you know, the birds haven't busted up yet and they're still out there competing for hens and trying to show off for hens. If you put that whipping boy out there, I'm telling you, since I used high definition decoys, and use the whipping boy setup, my success has literally gone through the roof. Number one, just getting the birds to finish. But more importantly, the birds come in and they spend 5, 10, 15 minutes around the decoys, beating up on them, picking at them, kicking them around, strutting. I mean, you can sit there and if a, if a, if a kid or a new hunter is nervous or you know excited or whether, you can let them calm down. Soak it all in, and that bird is going to spend a lot of time around those decoys and at some point is going to give them the absolute perfect shot opportunity without them feeling rushed, without them feeling panicked. It just it, it works all the way around no matter what you're dealing with. Chris, I think it's funny, you know, you mentioned youth and kids and getting panicked and here I've been hunting these birds for 20 years and <laughs> over 40 years old and I get panicked every time on, you know, it's, it, you know, I don't know what it is about a strutting turkey. I mean, I can have a bull elk at five yards bugling his brains out and it just, I love it. But you get a strutting turkey that's gobbling and tearing it up and ripping your decoys up. I fall to pieces. I, I mean, even when I'm guiding clients, I mean, it's just, I, it never gets old to me. I don't know about you. No, it's, um, it, it's the same. It, I, I'm laughing right now because, you know, before I was, you know, taking people out, I was I was always coming out to Kansas and Nebraska in the beginning of April um, to hunt for myself. And that's usually the archery season. And I'm laughing because I would always show up 
with uh, six to eight arrows, a, a quiver full of arrows, and then I'd have extra ones in my 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 bow bag because. Well, that would last me about an hour. I'd show up with about 40. Dude, I'm, I'm, t- I'm telling you, it's funny. I would go hunt with my buddy. You know, I've got a, a friend of mine who's a, he's a phenomenal uh, target archery shooter and, and competition shooter. And so he'd come out, and if a bird walked in front of him, I mean, one shot, boom, bird's dead. Where me, I'm like you, man. The bird comes in, and I'm my heart's pounding. I'm, I'm excited. And so – there goes arrow number one, and I'm using the head chopper style broadhead, so you're shooting at their head anyway. So there goes one arrow, missed. Shoot, there's another one. Oh, I put the arrow through his tail fan. I mean, we would joke about the fact that I'm like, hey, at least when I come out here, I'm going to get my money's worth because I'm going to shoot a <laughs> heck of a lot of arrows. He comes out, he shoots one arrow, the, arrow, the bird's dead, oh, your hunt's over. Not me. I get multiple yeah. opportunities because I'm missing left and right. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's fun. It's amazing how it brings the kid in you out every time. And um, Chris, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, in closing, uh, uh, just to close this segment out, we're going to have to talk again on a lot of other subjects. Um, in closing, how can people uh, get a hold of you? And um, do you have any uh, parting words of wisdom for uh, the season coming up? And and um, any little tips? Yeah, you bet. The the easiest way is always right just through the, the website, just rowhuntingresources.com. And there's multiple avenues to, to contact me through that, whether it's email or we have a, a, a chat function there as well. And again, it's, it's row as in R-O-E. Uh, so R-O-E huntingresources.com. And you, by all means, send me an email, whatever. I'm, I'm open. And then it, for the subscribers, we do have a forum there and we've got the ability to do essentially what we're doing here, computer, you know, either with Skype or um, uh, video conferencing, all sorts of stuff. Uh, the resources that we provide our subscribers is, is immense. But the, the number one thing that I can tell people right now, if they're looking ahead and they're wanting to get ready for turkey season, again, where I'm especially for us that are going to be out in this Midwest, the the weather is is uh, it's been dry and it depends on where you're going in how bad the the weather has been. So right now, the number one thing that I can tell people to do is figure out what the agriculture looks like wherever you're going. And and I say agriculture, but wherever the primary food source, again, for us along the river bottoms, it's winter wheat. But wherever you're going, whatever the primary food source is, figure out what crop rotation there is and where what cycle that's in. To know where you need to be, a lot of people contact me and say, I'm excited to go turkey hunting because during December and January on their goose hunt, they saw a whole pile of birds. Well, that's fine, but where they are in December, January, February is not necessarily where they're going to be in March and April, number one. And then number two, to dovetail off of that, call your landowners Call the fishing game agencies and at, if you're going to go public ground and talk to them and ask them how much moisture have they been getting? Is it been dry or has it been a, a normal year? Because if it's been brutally dry, just understand that you may need to focus your scouting efforts closer to the wintering areas than if it's been a normal or a wet year where you might find birds more scattered. So pay attention to what the moisture has been. Contact folks that are near your hunting area that are on the ground 
and ask them what they're seeing because I mean, you, you, you wait all year long, you plan a week, a weekend trip or a four day weekend or whatever, and you get out there and the birds are two miles away on a different property or they're just not responding. A little bit of groundwork now can pay big, big dividends later. Awesome. That's awesome stuff, Chris. I really appreciate that. And, uh, Tell me again the, uh, the the J Scott Outdoors podcast uh, promo you're running on row hunting resources. Give me that. Give me that one more time. Where do they enter that? Well, if you go to the, when they log into the the website, you'll see just the generic homepage. But there's a spot where they can sign up if they if they want to sign up for one of the modules. You can hit this. You can navigate and sign up. And if you just want the turkey module or the elk module or whatever or the annual, you can click on that and, and it'll bring you to the page where you can sign up. And there's a spot in there where you can put a promo code. And that promo code, it, I was going to spell out J. Scott Outdoors podcast, but I was like, that's too long. So I just did J-S-O, the initials for J. Scott Outdoors. So J-S-O podcast in the promo code. And it automatically gives them a 20% off. You can do it with a credit card. You can do it with PayPal account, however you want to do it. And just so folks know, I always want people to, to I, I always want to make sure that people get what they pay for. And I'm always, I mean, I just, that's just how I am. It, we all, we absolutely have a money back guarantee and we've never used it. No one has ever done it. But if you get in there, you sign up and you look at the stuff and you've got 24 hours if you get in there and you play around with it within the first 24 hours and you say, you know what, this is this is not for me, we give you your money back. No questions asked. Not a big deal. We've never had anybody do that, though. Almost always people will buy a turkey module or they'll buy an elk module and then they'll look at it and go, oh, my gosh. And then they want to upgrade to the annual. We can st- we can do that same thing as well. Uh, and it's very, very flexible. So don't. We take care of our members, so so don't hesitate to, to get on there, take a look at it, and and let us know what and give us feedback on what you think. So just J S O podcast, and that's the promo code, and it'll hook you up. Yeah, and I have to say, being a subscriber for years, um, you know, and I consider myself, you know, definitely an advanced, um, you know, turkey and elk hunter, and I go on there all the time and am blown away at the the quality of stuff that's on there. So check it out. And uh, Chris, we thank you for your time. I look forward to talking with you again. I'm going to have to check in with you here pretty soon and get an update on how your season's going. Make sure to text us pictures and stay in touch through Instagram. Uh, what, what's your Instagram account? I believe it's Row Hunting Resources. Uh, yep. Yep. Okay. Ro- yep. That, that, uh, we've got the Instagram row hunting resources. We've got our YouTube channel. The same thing. Everything's row hunting resources. We try to keep it easy. So yeah, we same thing. But I definitely will. We'll we'll stay in touch and uh, we'll share some pictures. And and I'm going to be getting one of the things that we do on our YouTube channel is something I call the sweet feed, where it's just a couple minute short little video blog, if you will, giving updates and little tidbits here and there. I'm going to be kicking those off here very 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 soon. Uh, with some of the scouting tips and some other stuff. So absolutely, people can engage us any way they want, and we will definitely make sure that we stay connected with you, Jay. All right, buddy. As always, thank you. God bless, and I hope you have a great season and look forward to speaking with you here soon. Thank you, sir, and I I say the same back to you. Good luck this year, and uh, I look forward to seeing the pictures. All right, buddy. Sounds good. All right, bye. 
Thanks to Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources for spending time with us today talking about turkeys and all the stuff that he has going on in Kansas. Uh, he's just a great resource, uh, has a lot of great information, and uh, I've been a follower of Rowe Hunting Resources for years, so I want to thank him for uh, coming on. And uh, I want to thank you, our listeners, at the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast. I uh, really appreciate your support, and uh, thank you for uh, uh, all your comments and all your positive feedback. Uh, we're getting uh, comments on uh, different websites, uh, on our email, by text, by phone. Um, yeah, just uh, really appreciate you guys listening. If you have any comments uh, or questions, questions uh, you can send them to jscottoutdoors at gmail.com i want to encourage you guys to uh, follow along on our uh, blog and on our website jscottoutdoors.com on our youtube channel uh, jscottoutdoors a lot of hunting and fishing videos uh, a lot of how-to stuff and uh, that's growing by the day and and we appreciate your support uh, you can go on our J. Scott Outdoors Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at J. Scott Outdoors. Uh, we appreciate your support. And uh, uh, if you haven't already, uh, go on iTunes if you like what you're hearing and give us uh, five-star ratings and uh, give us some positive comments um, and feedback. That helps our uh, standing with iTunes. And I uh, just uh, want to thank you guys for supporting us. Some of you might have noticed that uh, I started the show with an uh, introduction to GoHunt.com Insider. And uh, GoHunt.com has stepped up and they are the first sponsor of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing. And I just uh, want to thank them for their uh, support. And uh, I have become a GoHunt Insider uh, member and I've been uh, going through the website and uh, uh, you can have all of the information on the western states uh, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. Uh, you can research the different species, the statistics and historical data uh, to find the top producing trophy units. Uh, they go over each of the state's information in depth, breakdown on how to apply and to hunt in each state. And you get in exclusive insights uh, into uh, tips to apply and, and uh, how to help you have more efficient time spending in the field. Uh, you can also get landowner tags uh, at a reduced rate. And uh, GoHunt.com is uh, proving to be a great resource. Uh, they have a uh, great website. Uh, they have a great Facebook page. Um, they they post daily. They have great content. Uh, Brady Miller over there um, that works for them uh, actually hunted with us down in Mexico, and he's just a a real diehard hunter. And um, he's in charge of a lot of the digital content. And uh, I look forward to partnering with GoHunt.com Insider and. Uh, uh, just uh, want to thank them for their support. So you guys check them out. And until next time, guys, God bless.